Very well. We'll come to God's Word together, and we're opening our Bibles at Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to consider with you some of the things that Paul says, and it is only going to be some of the things that Paul says in the opening six verses of this chapter. So Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also you all once conducted, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking a question, a couple of questions. Who am I and what am I as a human being? Who am I and what am I? Those are important questions, are they not? To understand ourselves, very important. We live in this scientific age, We have the skill, the cleverness to uh, send people to the moon. We can look into the deepest parts of space with our telescopes. We can plumb the depths of the oceans with submersibles, submersibles. But do we understand ourselves? I think we are perhaps more than ever confused about who and what we are. Uh, The reason I think this is because of what's going on in our uh, halls of power and in our uh, places of education where we're encouraging uh, all sorts of alternative ideas. You can identify as anything you like these days. And it raises this question then, who am I and what am I as a human being. I need to know, and I'm sure you feel that you need to know as well, what am I? Well, how can we truly know ourselves? Where can we go? There was a wise man who 500 years ago, in the opening sentence of his book, said this, Nearly all true and sound wisdom consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. He's surely right. A knowledge of God and a knowledge of ourselves are foundational to all true knowledge. Well, where are we to go? If we're to seek this understanding, well, I believe we go to the Bible. It's here in the Word of God, this incomparable book, the Bible. 
Have you ever thought about the uniqueness of the Bible? That's not my theme this morning. But oh, it's a wonderful theme to think about the uniqueness of the Bible. I know some people in our culture want to put the Bible on a shelf with all other books, so-called holy books. Uh, but, but you can't do it. It stands out. There's a brightness, a light. There are features and uh, aspects of the Bible that make it stand out and make it unique amongst all uh, books in the world. Well, the Bible, it's the place where we go. It's like a mirror. If we want to understand ourselves, uh, we can go here. That's our message this morning. We could preach mess, a message about God, but that's not our theme this morning. We're going to be looking at what the Bible says about us as human beings. And one of the reasons why I believe we can trust the Bible is because of its honesty. The Bible doesn't flatter the Bible doesn't brush under the carpet the uncomfortable things that we confront in life. The Bible isn't a social media platform where you can project an image that has been filtered and uh, can perhaps see yourself, present yourself in a, in a glossy, almost uh, superstar way. We can all be film stars through social media and its, its uh, filtered images. But, the, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fabrication. It's a lie. It's a, it's a falsehood. And it all will come crashing down in the end. And, and we can see the impact of all of that on the lives of young people, the incredible pressure it puts them under. It doesn't match up to reality. Well, I don't know about you, but I want truth. I want reality. I don't want to be flattered. If, 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 if it's warts and all, then let it be warts and all. And the Bible is just that, warts and all. It paints for us a picture of ourselves that is most uncomfortable. But it also presents to us a solution that is wonderful, profound, and deeply satisfying. That's why I'm a Christian today, because of the veracity of God's Word. It matches up with my experience in life. About 30 years ago, thereabouts, maybe not quite, but nearly getting on for that, I was sat in a garden with a friend. I was in my early 20s, and uh, he was uh, probably, I think he was early, early retired by then, and uh, we, were, we were working on his garden together. If you, you don't really need to know that, but that's what we were doing. And we took a break, and we sat down in his garden on the bench, and we began to talk about life and the meaning of life and all these kinds of things. And he said this, and I've never forgotten it. Sefton said this. He's not in the world anymore, but he said, this was his philosophy. He said, I believe that people are basically good. Now, there's nothing radical about that, is there? Because that's what a lot of people say in our culture. They will say, well, we, people, human beings are basically good. And I suppose, to some extent, if you've lived a, a kind of middle-class, comfortable life where everything has been provided, there's always been food, and you've never been on the receiving end of much crime or anything like that, you might be able to sustain that philosophy that people are basically good. But let me tell you another story. Listening to the radio some years ago, and the tragic 
uh, incident where a woman's daughter had been murdered. And there she was, reflecting on these things on the radio. And I, I remember how she said, how can I tell my children that people are good when something like this has happened? Her daughter had been murdered. How can I tell my children that people are basically good? The philosophy doesn't match up the reality. Well, the Bible's analysis of what we are as human beings, it is worse perhaps than we might think, but the answer is more wonderful than we can imagine. And so I want us to look at this subject through the window of this little passage here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. There are many sermons, and you know that there have been many sermons preached on uh, this passage, but we are just going to touch on some things that we see here. And I have simply two headings for you this morning, and the first is this. Paul declares that we are dead in sin, dead in sin by nature. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who had lived pagan lives, um, and he's preached the gospel to them, and they've been saved. And as he writes this letter now to them, he says to, you, to them, you, God has made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. What a devastating thing to say. You were dead. And what he says to them, he says to us all, because in verse 2, he says that this condition that they were in was characteristic of the whole world. You once walked according to the course of this world. And uh, he says it again in verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, and so on. Paul's statement here and we remind ourselves that he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's statement here is devastating. He says that in our natural condition, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, this is an uncomfortable thing to be told. It's like having a cancer diagnosis. It's not something that we want to hear, but, but we need to know the truth. And here it is, warts and all. I want to say four things about this statement that Paul makes here, that we are dead in sin. And the first is this, that this death is real. This death is real. Paul is not using metaphor here. This is not an analogy. I've heard some Christians play down this passage of Scripture. Oh, well, it's just, it's just metaphorical language. But when Paul says you were dead in trespasses and sins, he is describing something that is absolutely real. And the reason I say that is because there is an equation here. He states in verse 1 that we uh, naturally are dead in sin, but to the believer he is able to say that we have been made alive in Christ. Verse 5. Alive together with Christ. Now, this is an equation, I say. And if, 
If the, if the statement that we're dead in sin is a metaphor, well, then you have to e- uh, balance the equation, and the statement that you are alive in, in Christ is simply a metaphor. And no Christian will allow that for a moment because we know the reality of this experience of life in Christ. It's a living, pulsating thing that we have. That's not a metaphor, and neither is this statement then in verse 1. So, friends, we're looking into this mirror, and the Bible is telling us that we're dead in sin. This is a sobering statement. There is something profoundly wrong with us as we are born into this world. We are dead in sin. It is real. Well, what does it mean that we are dead? Well, that brings us to the second thing. This death is moral. When Paul says that we're dead, he describes for us the the context of that. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Here is the reason. Here is the cause. Here is what has brought about this state of death in us. It is sin. Now, when a person dies in our country, a death certificate has to be issued. And on the death certificate will be some expression of the the cause of death. Well, here is the Bible's death certificate, and it tells us the reason for our condition, the reason that we are dead. We are in sin, trespasses and sin. A devastating disease has taken over our souls, and it has killed us. This disease kills every patient that it infects. We, yes, we've been living through this pandemic, and there's been terrible fear of the coronavirus. Maybe, again, somebody gets a cancer diagnosis. There's terrible fear of, of cancer. These things, they kill. But at least with COVID or with cancer, there are those who recover. But not so with sin. Sin kills every patient that it infects. There is a moral disease. The wages of sin is death. Paul says elsewhere in Scripture, this death, then I say to you, is, is a moral thing. There is something morally wrong with us. But I can well imagine someone listening to this message who perhaps isn't used to uh, being spoken to like this, and, and you might say, well, I'm not a sinner. What are you saying this morning? You're telling me that, that I'm a sinner? I'm no, I'm no sinner. I'm no criminal. I've never killed anybody. I've never robbed a bank. I've never done any great sin in that regard. Well, perhaps you need to think a little more deeply about what's wrong in your life. Can I just point you to what Paul says in verse 3 for a moment? Look at what he says there. We need to take this into account when we're trying to understand this statement that we're dead in sin. What sort of thing does he have in mind? Well, look at verse 3. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves 
in the lusts of the flesh. In the lusts of the flesh. He sees this as sinful lusts. Now, you may not have murdered someone, but I dare you to say that you have never lusted. Who can possibly, with any sense of self-knowledge, say, well, I have never had desires in my heart that if they were projected on a screen would make me ashamed in the face of others. We, We know what this means. We've been there. We understand this. This is something that is true of all of us. We all wrestle with these lusts of the flesh, inordinate desires for forbidden things, unclean things, unsavory things, temptations that we wrestle with. And this is what the apostle is talking about here, sin. It's not those grosser crimes that simply put people in prison, but it is an inner corruption that puts us in this state of spiritual death. Sin is not just doing bad things, but having bad desires that spring from a bad heart within us. So this death is real. This death is moral. And then we move on to, to say this, that this death is relational. It's relational. At the heart of this problem that Paul is talking about here is a broken relationship with God. Look at verse 2 and the end of that verse. He speaks of the sons of disobedience. He's describing the same people all the way through. He's just using these different phrases to give different angles on this problem. And and at that point, he describes us in our natural condition as sons of disobedience. Now, that is a sort of Hebraism. It's a way that the Hebrews would speak, the son of this or the son of that. And, and what it means is that uh, when you describe someone as a son of, of disobedience, that they are inherently disobedient, unavoidably so. They're bound up with disobedience. They're characterized by disobedience, a son of disobedience. It comes naturally to them. That's what this language means, the son of disobedience, always being disobedient. Well, disobedience has to do with authority. Disobedience has to do with law. Where there is no law, there can be no disobedience. But when a law uh, is, is given, when authority is imposed, and we disobey, then we have disobedience. And our disobedience of God has brought about this state and condition of death. It is a separation from God. It is a relational problem. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden again uh, for a moment this morning. It's always so helpful to see how these things uh, happened. And I, I remind you of what it says when God speaks to Adam in the garden, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17, when this law is given, one law, just one law, 
There's all these trees in the garden. Adam, you're free to eat from all these trees. But there's one tree, Adam, that I don't want you to eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of that tree you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, you know the story. Eve is created. She's brought to Adam. The serpent comes. He tempts Eve. And Eve gives, she takes of the fruit and she gives of the fruit to Adam. And they have disobeyed God. But they haven't died. They're still living and breathing. They're able to to still walk around in the garden. In fact, they hear God coming, walking in the garden as He did, and would often come, and they would have sweet fellowship with God in the garden, but not on that day. They hide away in the garden. But they're alive. Is God a liar? He says to Adam that in the day that you eat of that tree, you will most surely die. It looks as though Satan was right after all. For Satan had said, you will not die, but you'll become like God. Look, we're still alive. But they have died, haven't they? They have died in terms of their relationship with God the God to whom they ran before in the garden, now they're hiding away from Him. They're afraid of Him. They know their conscience is guilty. They know they've broken His law. They know they've exposed Himself to to God's displeasure. They're afraid. There's been a rupture in the relationship. They have died. They've been disconnected from God, from the source of true life and blessedness. They've fallen into sin. A gulf has opened up between them and the living God. They still look to be alive, physically, visibly, but spiritually they have died. And that spiritual death, though in terms of Adam and Eve, it might have taken many hundreds of years, yet eventually they died physically as well. Let me use a picture of, for a moment of this. Have you ever thought about it in this way? Uh, a, a tree, a beautiful tree. There it is, growing firm and strong and full of life and vitality. Its leaves are green and, and uh And maybe there's even fruit growing on it. And then something happens. The tree gets cut down. And there it is now, lying on the ground. But but if you came up to it the following day, you you might not necessarily immediately recognize that it's being cut down at all because the leaves are still green. The fruit is still on it. You might come back a week later and still the leaves are green and the fruit is on it. Come back a little further on and begin, you begin to see that the glossiness has gone out of the leaves. There's a dullness that's come. And that death is at work because the tree has been cut down. It's been disconnected from the root. The source of life has been severed. 
It might look to be alive for a period of time afterwards, but really, it, from that moment that it's been cut down, it's dead. It's finished. And this is how we are to think of ourselves. This is what the Bible is saying to us. Can we understand it this morning? This is what this, this mirror we're looking into is, as we look into the Scriptures. This is what it's showing us. That our problem is that we have disobeyed God and, and our relationship with God has been broken. We've been cut off from Him, from the source of life and blessedness. We are dead spiritually and we are going to die physically. But there's a fourth thing here. So we, we've said this death is real. This death is moral. This death is relational. And fourthly, and forgive the tautology of it, but this death is fatal. <laughs> you say, well, death, death is fatal. It's inherent within it. But, but we need to grapple with this. We, we, we need to see the seriousness of this because we are, again, we're so prone to think in terms of our present existence. But this is not all there is. There is a world to come, and, and there's the question of where we are going to spend eternity. And if we die in this state of, of spiritual, moral, relational death, if, if physically we die in that condition, then it is eternally fatal. Our present, as bad as our present condition may be, it is going to get worse. Without remedy, it will get worse. Look at what it says at the end of verse 3. Again, another statement that Paul uses to describe us in our natural condition. By nature, children of wrath, just as the others. Children of wrath. Well, here is another uh, Hebraism. Wrath belongs to us in our natural condition. We are under God's divine displeasure. His wrath, His law has been broken and therefore His justice has been offended and we have exposed ourselves to the sentence of that broken law which is eternal separation from God to experience His eternal wrath to be sent away from Him, away from His light, away from all His mercies and blessings, away from everything that would be joyful and, and uh, that would give us uh, pleasure. There are still pleasures in this world, but if we pass from this world in this state of spiritual death, there will be no more pleasure, but we will fall under the eternal wrath of God. This language reminds us that the judgment day is coming. God is slow to wrath. God is slow to wrath. He is merciful. He doesn't send us to hell the moment we tell our first lie. God is slow to wrath. But wrath looms over us. And unless there is some remedy to this, it will come and it will break upon our heads with fearful and irresistible force. Children of wrath 
It is our inheritance. It is what will come to us. It is unavoidable. Wrath will break over us in this state and condition. So this is the Bible's declaration about us. I need to know this. It's uncomfortable. It's not pleasant. But I need to know this if I'm going to know myself. Any other analysis of myself does not match up to the reality. So we're dead in sin. It's a real, moral, relational, and fatal death. But oh, praise God, we don't leave it there this morning. We come then to the second thing that we have to say from this passage. And this is what gives us hope. This is what we've experienced as Christian people. This is what lifts us out of the pit of despair today. The hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we who were dead in trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Christ. It's the bad news that makes the good news so sweet and so blessed to us. Everything changes here in this passage at verse 4, doesn't it? But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love. Now, I just want to touch on a few things, three things I want to say about this life that we have and can have in Christ today. I want to say this first of all, that this life is of divine origin. It is divine in its origin. And Paul underlines it for us in the way that he constructs this passage after all the bad news of verses 1 to 3, this statement, these two little words, but God. It makes all the difference in the world. God has done something. He hasn't left us where we are. God has intervened. He's looked upon us. He's done something for us. In love, He has saved us. These two tiny little words are colossal in their significance, my dear friends. God has stooped. God has come. We were helpless. It doesn't get more helpless than being dead, does it? You can ask a corpse all you want. You can shout as loud as you like, but a corpse can do nothing. We were utterly helpless and hopeless in our natural condition, but God did something. God intervened. He pursued us. He sought us. He sent a Savior for us. All the emphasis here is, is upon what God has done, that He may have all the praise and all the glory. We, we have nothing to say for ourselves, no, no virtue to claim for ourselves. It's all of God's wonderful grace. Well, what has He done? Well, you know the story. He sent His Son. He sent His own beloved Son, the one whom he, the Father, had always loved throughout the endless ages of eternity, Father and Son and Spirit, in beautiful harmony and unity together. And yet the day came when the Son came into this world. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, says John, and we beheld His glory. And He lived among us as a man. 
He fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. And then he went to Calvary's cross. And there he suffered agony and anguish. There he went through hell itself in the place of sinners. He shed his blood. Atonement was made so that forgiveness could be offered to wretched, sinful, law-breaking people like you and me. Just turn your eye back to the first chapter of Ephesians here a moment in verse 7. See how Paul states it there. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's what I need. That's what I, as a sinner, I don't need to win the lottery. Oh, it makes my heart break when I see cues of people, maybe less so now under corona, but I see cues of people filling in their lottery tickets, hoping for their lucky day. You know, the worst thing that could happen to you is to win the lottery. That's the worst thing that could happen to you because you then put all your hope in this God that can't save you, that can't redeem you, that can't deliver you from the wrath of God. Money. You can't buy your redemption with money. But the blood of Jesus Christ pleads forgiveness for us. This is what I need. As the Apostle Peter describes it, he bore in his own body our sins upon the tree. Is that true of you this morning? Do you understand this? Does this thrill your heart? Is this where you're at? Can you say, yes, I was dead in my sins, but oh, I've looked to Christ and I've seen that God has done something for me in Christ Christ has done for me what I could not do for myself. This is the gospel. This is good news. It's not a self-help program. My friends, the gospel is not pull, up your, pull yourself up by your bootlaces and try a little bit harder. That's not the gospel. If you've been going to any church where, where that's what's been being preached, then stop going there. This, this is the gospel that God in His grace has provided all that we need for salvation in Jesus Christ. And all we do is receive it as a gift by faith. God has intervened. He's done something wonderful for us. Friend, if you this morning, if you're not a Christian and, and the early part of this message had went any way to helping you understand your spiritual brokenness. Now I need to hear you that you understand this, that the remedy is Jesus. You need to get, yes, you need to see how broken you are, but you need to get beyond that. You need to look up out of your dark pit and look to Christ. You won't understand everything that's written in the Bible or even written here in this particular passage. You won't understand everything that I say to you this morning. But if you can look it to, to, to Christ in faith, that will save you. You will be lifted up. So this life, it's of, of divine origin. This life, it's merciful in its expression. I need to hasten to a conclusion this morning, but I, I can't leave this out. Look at what, what Paul says here. Yes, God has intervened and he's done so in mercy and in love. Rich in mercy because of His great love with which He has loved us. 
It's a wonderful thing to be loved, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing to be loved. It's a wonderful thing to receive mercy. And that's what we receive through the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this amazing? We are the ones who offended. We snubbed God. We went our own way. We were disobedient. We, we bit the hand that fed us. And yet, that very hand that feeds us refuses to leave us. And in fact, it yields to that pier- the piercing of the nails for us. He pursues us. We are like Adam and Eve, running from God, hiding from God. Uh, the vast majority of people in Cardiff this morning... The last thing in their minds is to think that they need God. They're running from Him. But He is not put off. In His mercy and in His love, He pursues us. He would have us to be reconciled to Himself. We are the ones who've broken the law, and yet Christ becomes the law keeper for us in His life in this world. And He suffers the penalty of the broken law at Calvary's cross. There's this beautiful uh, balance then in, in the gospel. All the fault is on our side. All the grace and love and mercy is on His side. God has refused then to leave us to ourselves and that road of self-destruction. And how wonderful it is to hear our Savior as He yields Himself at Calvary's cross, as those cruel nails are driven through His hands and His feet. And yet, in the midst of all that anguish and agony and shame and disgrace of the cross, He prays, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. His shed blood pleads pardon for the repentant sinner. Can you dare to believe in Him? Can you entrust your soul to Him today? Maybe you think, well, I'm such a sinner. I'm such a sinner. How can I possibly be saved. All these terrible things that I've done in my life, how can I possibly bring all of that, all my dirty washing to God? Well, I'll tell you this, He already knows. (laughs) He already knows. And what He wants is for you to make confession of your sin, because if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't let the devil deceive you into thinking that you're too sinful. He's a devil of extremes. He'll drive you off into the ways of sin. And then when you feel convicted of sin, he'll say, oh, well, now you're too great a sinner. There's no way you can repent. There's no way you can come back. And I'm telling you this morning, the devil's a liar. Because the blood of Jesus Christ is powerful to cleanse from us the darkest stains of sin. Whatever shameful things we have done we can find healing and cleansing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me close with this statement, that this life that we're talking about in Christ, yes, it is of divine, it is divine in its origin, it is merciful in its expression, and it is accomplished through union with Christ. Look at what he says again in verse 5. 
Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Do you know what faith is? Faith is not simply agreeing with certain facts. It's not, faith is not saying, well, yes, Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago and then rose again. Oh, yes, he did. But, but acknowledging that is not faith. Faith is a living bond. Let's go back to our tree for a moment that's being cut down. Faith, as it were, puts that tree back upright. Faith reconnects the tree to the root. Faith connects us to Jesus Christ. It is by faith that now everything that is in Christ becomes ours. It flows into us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the life that Jesus lived becomes our life. His righteousness becomes ours. The death that Jesus dies becomes our death because He died in our place. The resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes ours because we are raised with Him, which is what Paul is saying here. And even if you move into verse 6, the ascension of Christ into glory is ours because we are united to Him, and therefore Paul is able to say that we have been raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What a glorious provision God has made for poor, wretched sinners. Here's the old, old story. Friends, many of you are Christians here. May, may it thrill your hearts afresh to uh, hear again of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. But if you're not a Christian, oh, I point you to Christ. As I said before, you don't need to understand everything that I've said. But look to Jesus. See that the answer is found in Him. His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. Here is the gospel, the good news of God's saving love and mercy for broken, wretched, dead sinners. Take Him. Take Christ as He's offered to you in the gospel. And may you find this new life that is the experience of everyone who puts their faith in Him.